Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 2. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Christ, you are the king. You are the king, the rightful king of all, not just your church, but of all the world, of every nation. All homage is due to you. We love you, Lord Christ. You have... The amazing thing about you as king is that you've come to serve us and to save us, to make us your people. And I thank you for the gathering of your people this morning. We are your people. We love you, and we want to honor you. Lord, give us ears to hear. Strengthen me. Help me to say what is helpful and what you would say to your people. Bless this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. This is a very um, important message to bring to you this morning. It's important not just because it addresses the unprecedented times that we're in. We're coming up on a year anniversary of the COVID-19 virus, the pandemic. But it's unprecedented because of the, how this has affected the church and society at large. And you guys have lived this. We've all lived this, right? The restrictions on us as a church and as a society. What's good about this is this time is that it's brought up questions. It's brought up questions for the church to answer, and it's brought up questions for the individual to answer, and really uh, the government ultimately. But here's the thing. Uh, we need to have these, these questions that are raised for us in, as individual Christians and as a church, we need to have these nailed down. We need to have these nailed down. The reason is it's not just about this issue with the COVID virus, the pandemic, and all of that. The reality is, is that what we're facing now, um, I truly believe this, is, is at the cusp of, of a future government that becomes increasingly corrupt and antagonistic to Christians. I truly believe that that is the reality. Um, we've seen even this week and even the last few weeks, the Biden administration has passed very, uh, very several wicked uh, and evil 
um, legislation or is trying to push that through. And it's going to be increasingly hard for us as individuals and as a church. And so what these questions that the virus has raised, it's, it's kind of good in a way because it's a primer for giving us a mindset to think about how do we as the church and as individual Christians relate to an increasingly antagonistic government. Originally, I wasn't going to speak on this uh, this Sunday. I was going to speak on um, another issue related to the church. I, uh, I'm glad we went where we did last week in talking about the church, because that's necessary and prerequisite to really talking about what we're going to talk about this week, which is what's the relationship between the church and the government, and, and how do we think about that? And so the elders wanted me to kind of de- um, dovetail over and talk about some of these issues, and I'm, I'm glad we are. And really, the issue that we're talking about here is an issue of authority, right? So the title of this message is Spheres of Authority. Well, I'll talk about the spheres in a second, but really the whole issue is authority. Who has authority, and where do they have authority? And so where we need to start is really where Psalm 2 starts is the authority of the Son, the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus' ultimate authority is where we need to start. You see, where does authority come from? You ever thought about that question? Where does authority, the authorities in our lives, where does it all come from? Well, ultimately, it all comes from God, right? God alone is the one who has absolute authority. God alone is the one who has absolute authority because he's the creator of all. There is no other. He is the great I am. He, he, all authority is from him. The, the Bible speaks of it like this in, um, in Daniel. If you were to flip over to Daniel chapter 4. Now, uh, like last week, we're going to be going through a lot of different passages. So you can do one of two things. You can either play sword drill with me or you can, or you can just, just listen um, you can just listen. Um, so Daniel 4, and Daniel's a very interesting book to read these days, thinking about the relationship between a godly individual and godly individuals and the government. But in any case, uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar is this, this king who's exalted himself and says, I'm great, I'm, I'm, I'm exalted, and God humbles him. He makes him like a uh, uh, an animal uh, for several years, but he makes this statement, and it's a great statement about God's ultimate authority. Daniel 4.34 says this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, speaking of God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see, all authority is from God. All authority is from God. And so all authority, all rightful authority is a stewardship authority, a delegated authority from God. Now you might ask the question, well, where did that start? When did that delegation uh, to humans of authority start? Well, again, I'll take you back to the beginning. Um, I'll take you back to Genesis 1. Very key passage. We'll probably talk about it um, a lot in our time together um, as, a, as a church and a pastor. But, but 
Genesis 1.26, you really see the beginning of a delegated authority. Genesis 1.26 says this. Really, really, this passage talks about who we are as individuals. What has God made us to be? What has God made humans to be? Uh, but then even more so, in, with regards to our issue, it talks about the issue of authority. Je- Genesis 1.26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the, the delegation to a human authority to exercise dominion, a.k.a. to exercise government, started before the fall and was given to Adam and Eve to exercise a stewardship authority, a stewardship rule. Now, we know how the rest of the story goes, right? That they tried to usurp that authority. They tried to become the ultimate authority in Genesis 3. They tried to usurp God's ultimate reign, and then we enter the fall. But, but as that storyline progresses, we get the promise of a king, right? We get the promise of a king. We get things like Psalm 2 that speak of one in David's line who will rule over all the nations, reclaiming what Adam lost. And then once we get to the Gospels, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, Jesus was the Son from eternity past, God the Son, and yet he became man. He took on that that nature, and he reclaimed what Adam lost, and he is the God-man. He is the one to ultimately exercise that stewardship, reign, and rule that Adam lost. And so it's true, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to Jesus Christ. If there was one thing I was going to leave you with, and one thing that you were going to take away this morning, it would be this, right? That Jesus is actively, actively has authority over all things. Ephesians 1.19 is very clear about this. Ephesians 1.19 119, the second part of the verse says, according to the working of his great might, uh, he's talking about what the Father has done through the Son, what the the Trinity has done in the work of redemption, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you see that? Not only in this age, so Christ has authority in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. You see, Christ is the head of every authority on this planet. He has the rightful rule actively and currently over everything and everyone, and he is given to us, the church, as the head. Christ has all authority. 
And that's, if there was one thing that you were going to take away this morning, it would be that. Christ has all authority actively, and we all have an accountability to him, not just as individuals, but as a church and as nations. Nations have accountability to come. Now, we understand we understand that the full manifestation of Jesus' kingdom is not yet. We wait for that for the future when he comes again to establish his full and final form of his messianic kingdom over all the nations, what Psalm 2 spoke of. And yet it's true that he is the rightful king and that he will hold all individuals, all churches, all nations, all families accountable because he is the ultimate authority. Jesus has ultimate authority. Okay, so we talk about that's where authority has come from, what authority is, but now we need to talk about, yeah, there's different spheres of life, and we have different spheres of authority, and this is one of the key things we want to talk about this morning, this idea of spheres of authority, and really we could talk about several, but we're going to limit ourselves to three, and the three that probably most clearly the scripture talks about, the family, the government, and the church. The family, the government, and the church. Now, we typically think of them, and I've got some visuals here for you, uh, like this. We typically think of the spheres of authority like this. Christ is overall, we've talked about that, that's that big red uh, outer sphere there, and then under the Christ is the government, but then under the government is the church and the family. And, and if you were, in a sense, right, if you were uh, this is how even the government views itself, doesn't it, right? Uh, or even unbelievers might view this, right? Because unbelievers kind of ignore the outer sphere. They ignore that outer sphere of Christ being head over all. They don't acknowledge his existence. And so the government oversees uh, things like societies, like the church uh, and the family. Friends, this is an incorrect view of how God has structured the world. So next slide just basically says that that's not correct. That is incorrect. Um, it's not this. Um, so what is the correct sphere? What is the correct sphere? Go ahead and go to the next slide. It's this. It's this. And this is what we mean by spheres of authority. Now, the math side of me is really happy right now because there's a Venn diagram on the screen. But, um, but you have Christ over all, Christ over all, and yet God has delegated uh, authority to each of those spheres. So we still have the same fears. We have the church, the family, and the government, and yet it is not as though one is necessarily, they're, they're responsible from different, for different things under God. They're responsible for different things under God, and that's where I want to kind of walk you through each of those spheres, and I want to walk you through, I want to show you a couple things with each sphere. One, that um, you see from the scriptures what what each sphere's responsibility before God is. What each sphere's responsibility before God is. And then also, um, also who leads in that sphere. And I want you to see that they, they are directly accountable to God. There's no, inter, there's no intervening step between each of those three spheres. There's no intervening step with, with the responsibility that Christ has delegated to them and Christ himself. So let's start with the family, the family. Uh, let me, since we're in Ephesians, the last uh, one we read, turn over to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. 
And really, we could even back up to 521, but I'll just read 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see there even that language, um, in the Lord, right? As to the Lord, that, that sort of language indicates a responsibility of the family directly to the Lord. But what, is, what are they responsible for? Well, of course, parents are coming under, or if children are coming under parents, a mom and a dad who are married and are overseeing the family. But what are they responsible for? Well, here it's really, we can frame it in the terms of education, Education. The family is responsible for education. Now, here that's spiritual, but even in a broader sense, if you look back to the Old Testament and that sort of mindset that the family is responsible to bring up their kids, moms and dads are responsible to bring up their kids to know the Lord, but also to give them practical skills for living life. Living life, working with their hands and honoring the Lord in that day. It is not the government's responsibility to educate children. It is the family's responsibility. Now, the family may delegate that responsibility to public education if they wish, but that ultimate responsibility lies with moms and dads, and and specifically here, uh, dads are called out as the ultimate responsibility and leaders of their home, spiritual leaders. Another one we could, another area that this family is responsible for is health and welfare and protection. Uh, First Timothy 5.8, a familiar passage maybe, is is this idea that, let's go ahead and turn there, 1 Timothy 5.8. And it's set in this broader context of talking about the church caring for for widows, but there's this principle in 1 Timothy 5.8 that's stated, and you can see the fingerprints of it all over the scriptures, but 5.8 is really kind of a nice summary. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And the idea here is is that an individual or families are responsible for health and welfare. We're talking about in the context of physical needs and, and provision. That is the responsibility of a family, right? So family is responsible before God for education, especially bringing them up in the fear and discipline of the Lord's children, but then even also we see this, um, this idea of health and welfare, protection for the family is delegated um, to the family and to uh, the moms and the dads that are overseeing that family, and especially husbands, especially fathers, caring. Moms and dads are held responsible for raising their kids, right? That's, that's the family. And we kind of get that, right? And you see that throughout the scriptures. So that is one sphere of authority and really a core one, right? That, that builds up. I mean, Paul is addressing that in Ephesians and Colossians, right? Because back in, even in Rome, but even in our society, right? That the family and even in God's design is a core building block of how society works. How society works. Well, let's switch over to another sphere. Let's switch over to the church. And this kind of dovetails nicely with what we were talking about last week with what is the church? What's it do, right? And we talked about the church is the, that local manifestation of God's concentrated presence on earth. But what does it do? And 
what's it's responsible? What are we responsible before God to do, right? Uh, collectively, all of us, what are we held responsible before God to do? Well, let's flip over to Matthew. And you guys know this text, the Great Commission. But this is, in a nutshell, if you were to go to one text that talks about what is our responsibility before God as a church and the church at large, Matthew 28, 18 says this. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We've already talked about that. Christ is king. He has rightful reign. So what is his commission? 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the commission right there. The, the, there's one main verb in this section, and it's make disciples. It's make disciples. Make followers and learners of Christ. How do you do that? You do that by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, baptizing them into the name of the triune God, and then teaching, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the church is held responsible primarily and first and foremost for making disciples. That is what we are held accountable to God to do, making disciples. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like a lot of different things. Right here, the nutshell form is baptism and teaching. But even under the teaching of, uh, thing, we can expand that. Uh, it looks like proclaiming the truth of God's word. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, Paul talks to Timothy about being uh, charging him in the presence of God and the coming of his kingdom, that over, overarching kingdom, right? He charges Timothy, preach the word. I was looking at this this morning. Preach the word in season and out of season. You see, God's word creates. God's word creates, right? And so we are responsible to preach. I am responsible before God to preach to you what God says in the scriptures. As a herald, I, I, don't, I don't have the authority to change the message. The message is here. It's all here. My, my job is just to, to pass on the message and to help make clear for you what is here. And not just my job, but the, the elders, Jim and Steve and Andre, together, all four of us, to equip you as saints for the work of ministry. And, and really, that leads us into that second part, uh, another good foundational text to look at. What's our responsibility? Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. We won't spend much time there, but if you were to read that, really great passage to read, and we'll, 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 we'll talk about it more at a, uh, some later date. But, but you see, it's not just my responsibility to speak the Word of God. It's all of your responsibility to speak the Word of God to each other and to, to the world speaking the truth to one another so that we might grow in Christ's likeness. See, there's a responsibility there. As we're talking about the responsibilities of the church, we are responsible to make disciples, which means we're responsible to speak God's truth to one another, to grow, to grow in maturity, to grow in Christ's likeness. The church is responsible. This is another area of responsibility. So they're responsible for making disciples, which means they have to proclaim the truth of God's word we're also responsible for administering the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we'll talk more about these at a future later date. They're very, very helpful to us. They're great pictures that the Lord has given to us. And yet as a church, as a gathered church, we are responsible to administer the ordinances of, the, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We are also responsible as a church to administer church discipline. 
Church discipline is designed by the Lord to uh, someone who's erring, someone who's going astray, that the church would go after that person, that they might be restored, but if they are not restored, to be expelled from the church for the purity of God's church. Remember that temple imagery we talked about last week, right? That's, that in that context, church discipline makes, it's a sober thing, and yet we are responsible before God to administer church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5. We are responsible before God to pray together. One of Steve's favorite verses, and it's a good one, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, which I take to mean the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, right? We are responsible. We are before God to pray together. Yes, we pray individually in our homes. We are called to do that, and yet we pray together. We are responsible before God to gather together for worship and mutual encouragement. Let me take you over to Hebrews. And this makes sense. We were talking a little bit about this last week. Uh, we, if we are the temple of God, the local manifestation of God's presence on earth, but the temple is people, right? Those individual stones are individual people now. Where does the temple show up? Well, it shows up when we gather. When we gather, that temple is manifested both to each other and to a watching world. But if you want to see an explicit command, Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, we are commanded to regularly gather and assemble. Why? Well, we talked about the why last week, because we manifest the, the, the local manifestation of God's temple, the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth to each other and to a watching world when we show up. It's not just what we get from the gathering, it's what we're doing and participating in as we gather. So we're responsible before God for that. We are responsible before God as the church to grow in maturity. We already talked about this, but we're responsible to grow. We are held accountable by Christ to grow, and we're, we're held accountable by Christ to help each other grow. Not just me to help you grow, as much as I love to do that and want to do that, but each other, help us helping each other to grow. The members of the local church are to serve one another. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, you've received a gift. You're to use it to serve one another as a, good, uh, as a manifestation of God's varied grace talked about this last week. We are, as part of that, that, that coming together and that manifesting of God's presence through his spirit in the gathering, we are to sing truth to one another. We are to sing truth. You, why do we sing, right? We, we've talked about, uh, I'm, I like to sing, um, but why, why, why do we sing? Well, put it in a, a shorthand form, singing helps us feel truth. It helps us feel truth deep in our souls. It helps us remember truth. That's why our songs need to be theologically sound and deep and rich, because it helps us remember truth. You hear of uh, dementia and Alzheimer's patients, right, that they, 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 they don't remember <laughs> much of anything around them, and yet when you sing hymns with them, they, that comes up, that bubbles up out of them, right? That is part of the God-ordained purpose for singing. Here's one that I didn't think about until last week, and, and I was, it just popped into my mind that we as a church are called to greet one another with physical affection. 
I finally found an application for those greet one another with a holy kiss passages, right? Uh, the end of Romans, Romans 6, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Peter 5, 14. They all talk about that reality of greeting one another physically. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm not asking for a smooch after service. Please don't do that. Uh, but, but what is the principle that carries over to today? What is the principle? And it is this, that there is, a, there is something about showing physical affection as Christians, as part of the household of God, as part of the family that we are to do, and that it is part of even spiritual encouragement. It's a command. Every one of those passages I just listed, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with physical affection. We are responsible to encourage in that way. The church is led by elders, over, overseers, pastors. Those are interchangeable terms. So uh, I'm not the pastor. There are four pastors here, Jim, Andre, Steve, and myself. Elders, overseers, pastors are to lead the church, but individual churches are held directly accountable to Christ. There's nothing intervening between this local church and Christ as the head of the church. How do I know that? Revelation 2 through 3, we don't have time to go there, but I commend the reading of Revelation 2 through 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, because what Jesus does is he says, he, he addresses letters directly to a local church, and he, he lists out, here's what you're doing good, here's what you're doing bad, here's what you need to do, right? And he's holding them accountable. He's holding them directly accountable. There's no intervening authority between the local church and what it's responsible for in Christ. So what about the government? Okay, so we've talked about the family. It's responsible for education, health, welfare, uh, that sort of a thing. It's responsibility of the family. We've talked about the church and the number of responsibilities that it has given to it by Christ. And obviously that's where the scripture spends the most amount of time. But what about the government? Where does human government come from? Well, we already talked about that. Human government predates the fall. It really does, right? Because God's original plan for government was Adam and his progeny to rule and exercise dominion over creation, right? To, it's sort of the picture is there's this, there's the garden and it's tamed and it's beautiful, right? But there's sort of this picture of an untamed creation out there and Adam and Eve are to, to tame it, to reorder it in such a way that it brings glory and honor to God, right? So that's what it means to be an image bearer. It means to exercise a stewardship rule uh, wherever God has placed you, but then for the purpose of glorifying God, for the purpose of, um, of honoring the ultimate king. That's where government starts. That's the ultimate foundation of it. Now, we know the fall happens, and the fall, if you want to put it in terms of governmental or kingdom-like language, is essentially a coup attempt, right? Humanity essentially tries to stage a coup and usurp God's reign. Well, it doesn't work, right? And yet, even after the fall, even after the fall, there was a call with Noah and his sons, uh, Genesis 9, 1 through 7, to that, that mandate to exercise dominion and rule is still is still in play. And I believe it's still in play to today. That is our fundamental calling as hum humans, to exercise a stewardship rule and dominion where God has placed us in such a way that we are honoring and glorifying him. And preeminently, the way that happens today is through the spreading of the gospel in the church, and yet there are other ways as well. And yet that mandate is still in play. What about 
what else? What's the government responsible for? So we kind of know where it comes from, but what's it responsible for? Well, again, the good nutshell passage for you is Romans 13, and you've probably read this many times, heard it quoted many times uh, during this, this last season. I would say this, though, it's very easily abused, and we need to understand it rightly. But for our purposes at the moment, uh, there is, it helps us understand what's the fundamental role in a fallen world um, for God's government. We've got that fundamental mandate, the Adamic mandate back in Genesis 1, but what else? What else in a fallen world? Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, we'll bring, come back to that passage in a bit, but in thinking about what does this passage say that the government's responsibility is, it's very simple. Praise good and punish evil. Praise good and punish evil. In other words, uh, uh, part of the fundamental God-ordained role for government is to provide impartial justice. Punish evil and praise good. Now, and he has, the government has, the authority has the sword to enforce that. Uh, you, one of that would be the death penalty. That's the ultimate measure of the sword, right? The sword being executed against those who have, uh, need, uh, by, by God's decree, right, um, deserve to die. And that is set forth in, in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, it essentially institutes the death penalty. By if someone sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed, right? That's the ultimate extent of punishing evil. So that's a sword internally used, but the government is also to provide defense for its citizens, right? That you could think of that as the sword external, right? The, the purpose of this, right, is ultimately all comes back to that Adamic mandate, right? What is government? The government's responsibility is still ultimately to provide and to promote that Adamic mandate, to provide for its citizens in pursuing, exercising a rule and dominion under God for the glory of its creator. And so the government is supposed to provide the conditions, the conditions uh, so that that can happen, which means impartial justice, and this uh, executing uh, capital punishment, if need be, internal to the nation, and then external in war. I would also say this, if you were to look at Psalm 72, right, um, we, won't, we won't spend time there, but Psalm 72 is wonderful because it kind of gives you the p final picture of where government is going. Where is government going? Well, the government is ultimately going to, we've already talked about it, is going to be handed back over to Christ, not just in a spiritual sense, but in a physical, tangible sense over this whole world. Talks about at the very end, even after the millennial kingdom, talking about the new heavens and the new earth, there are nations 
And there are people that are brought under Christ and under Christ's rule to exercise that. That's where government's going, is it's going to be under, under God directly. And so what you see in Psalm 72 is kind of this picture of what that's going to look like. And it's what it is, is you see perfect justice, and you see also what we might call human flourishing, human flourishing, where there's economic prosperity, there's no need or want. And so in a sense, in an ultimate sense, right, the government's responsibility is to provide for the conditions where that can be possible, right? I didn't say that the government's responsibility is to make you healthy and wealthy. It is not. But it is responsible to provide for the conditions where the, that is possible. So the government's responsibility, what, what do we say, right? It's ultimately to pursue and promote that Adamic mandate, exercising a stewardship rule and dominion under God for God's glory. That's the ultimate mandate, right? Because that's humankind's ultimate mandate. But within that, and especially in a fallen world, to exercise impartial justice, punish evil and praise good, right? So if you want to boil down what the government's responsible for within a fallen world, punish evil and praise good. Punish evil and praise good providing for the conditions of its citizens to pursue uh, that Adamic mandate. And here's the thing. The government is held directly responsible to God. So remember, go back to our spheres, right? There's no intervening authority between the church and Christ. There's no intervening authority between the family and Christ for the things it's responsible for, right? For the things it's responsible for, and then even the government for the things it's responsible for, there is no intervening authority between the government and Christ. How do I know that? Well, you can see it in multiple places in Scripture. Book of Daniel is a good example. Book of Daniel is a good example. You've got guys like Nebuchadnezzar, right, this world leader. He oversees a bunch, and yet he disobeys. Uh, he does what's wrong, and he's held directly accountable by God, right? And, and, and Daniel is sent, or uh, or maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are sent to, to tell the, 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 the government, essentially, what you've done is wrong and God is punishing you. Uh, and so the government is held directly accountable by God. Jesus himself said it, and it's, it's really interesting to think of uh, Jesus talking with Pilate, right? And John, right? He has these, these interviews with Pilate. And, and Pilate says, don't you know I could release you? I have the authority to release you if you want. And Jesus says, you don't have any authority over me at all unless it was given to you by the one who is above. Therefore, whoever delivered me over to you is guilty of the greater sin, right? So he is in that even implicitly holding Pilate accountable for his actions, right? But, but it, is, it is ultimately God's responsibility to, um, to hold the government accountable. Now, within that, I would say this, right? And this kind of dips us back to the church, right? You if, if, if the government is held directly responsible to God, how does it know when it's doing right or wrong? How does it know when it's doing right or wrong? Because that's its responsibility, Romans 13. One of the responsibilities of God's people throughout history, you see this with the Old Testament prophets, you even see it in the New Testament to some extent, you see it with John the Baptist. It's got, good and bad as God defines it, Right? And part of our responsibility as Christians and as the church is to tell the government that's, 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 uh, that's wrong and this is right. That's wrong and this is right. It's not the government's responsibility to define right or wrong. That's defined by God. But it is God's people's responsibility to, call, to say what you're doing countervenes what's right and wrong in the eyes of God. 
Now, we've gone over each of those spheres, but there's overlap, right? There's this overlap, right? It's a Venn diagram. So, so what's the deal with the overlap? Well, there are issues as we go through life, especially in a fallen world, where there's common concern. Let me give you some examples. Let's suppose, God forbid, that there is abuse in the family, right? There's domestic abuse in the family. Well, certainly the family has an interest in that and wants to intervene, right, to care and to protect even the extended family through that. This church has an interest because if it's a Christian family, uh, that is sin and needs to be held account by up to and including church discipline. But the state also has an interest because that's a citizen that's being harmed and justice needs to be meted out. So there's these common areas of concern. Let me give you another one. Um, Sunday school or uh, children's uh, programs in a church, right? So the ultimate responsibility for raising up children in the fear and discipline of the Lord is the family. However, the church has an interest in raising up those children, make sure they're discipled, right? And they are following the Lord. So that's a common area of concern, right? So that's a common area of concern. What about if there was, God forbid, and we never want this to happen, we, we are vigilant against such things. What if there was abuse in the church? What if there was abuse in the church? Well, the state has the right because uh, to intervene and mete out justice if the church is not doing it, right? So that's where the overlap happens. There's common areas of concern. Now, here's, here's the catch, though, right? Here's the catch, is when there's common areas of concern, it's not that one authority has uh, authority over another, it's that there's cooperation. In an ideal world, there should be cooperation when there's common areas of concern. So here, this brings us back to the issue at hand. The claim is that during the pandemic, the church and the state have an overlapping area of concern, caring for the safety of the church members and the broader community, right? That's been the claim throughout all of this. And there is, there is a level to which the church ought to care for the physical needs of its members. James 1, 15 through 16. If you just say, uh, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving something needful for the body, uh, what good is that, right? Uh, we are not just talking, we, we are physical and spiritual creatures all put together, right? And so as a church, we care for the physical needs of our members. You can see this also in the famine relief that you see in Acts, right? There's the churches at large, right? The, the churches in Asia Minor, there's a collection that's taken up to minister to a physical need for the poor saints in Jerusalem. There's also a reality as individuals and as organizations, as churches, there, there should be preventative measures for high-risk situations. Let me give you an example of that, a principle in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22.8, there's the talk of you build a parapet around your roof. Why is that? Well, because in Israel, you, you go upstairs, you go on your roof. You did a lot on your roof, actually, right? That's a pretty high-risk situation, right? What if someone falls off the roof? So the homeowner is called to build a parapet to, to, to mitigate risk in a high-risk situation. So there is some of that at play. Even with diseases, leprosy was a serious illness in the Old Testament, right? And the individual sick person was isolated until they could rejoin the community. The individual was isolated until they could rejoin the community. Here's the reality, though, in all of that. So I'm just, 
what I'm giving you in all of that is these are principles. These are things that we need to weigh as we come to this issue. But here's the reality. And you need to hear this and we need to understand this because this isn't being said very much. The reality is that neither the church nor the state can guarantee a risk-free environment. Neither the church nor the state can guarantee a risk-free environment. It can only do its reasonable best to mitigate risk, right? So high-risk environment, we mitigate that as best we can. We miss best we can, right? That is a responsibility, but you cannot eliminate risk. Here's the reality during this time. The, church, the government does not have the right to interfere in the church's sphere, in issues of, of worship, in issues of worship. But in an overlapping area of concern, the church may attempt to cooperate with the government, right? So think of it like this. The United States has no right to impose anything on Canada, right? Has absolutely no right. Why? Because they are individual countries with direct responsibility before God. In a similar way, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but in a similar way, the church and the state uh, have, one does not have the right to impose on the other. And it goes both ways, right? I can't, it's not our responsibility to the church to form legislation. It's not, right? We don't have that responsibility. However, when there is overlapping concern, there may be cooperation, just like the U.S. and Canada may cooperate when there's an issue of concern. But here's the responsibility that we come back to as a church. The church must assess as best as it can the physical and spiritual risk with this illness and with this disease to see if modifications in its normal responsibilities to which it is accountable to God are warranted. That is what we come back to. Those are the spheres of authority. Now, that being said, we talk about another principle. Let me just pause here for a moment, and what we're doing at this point, we're bringing you up to speed in what we're thinking about as elders, right? These are all the principles that we're trying to weigh and trying to balance and think about what is, what is right before God that we do. And so part of that we need to remember is that Jesus has the ultimate authority. We always need to remember that. We always need to remember that. We need to understand the spheres of authority. What is each sphere held accountable to God for? And what are we held accountable to God for as the church? And then we must talk about this final issue of disobeying governmental authority. When is it right? This is an age-old question. This is not new. This has happened in the church's history since its inception, really. When is it right for a Christian or a church to disobey the government? When is it right for a Christian or a church to disobey the government. Now, before I answer that question, let's go back to that timeline of when did government start? Well, it started in the, uh, in the garden, right? That God has issued a stewardship uh, command, a stewardship command uh, for, for exercising rule and dominion to ultimately bring honor and glory to God, right? Well, what's happened, though, is since the fall, right, there's, there's essentially two two things going on. You've got the people of God, right? The people of God, those who are saved, and know him, and then you've got the offspring of Satan, right? The, that's how the Bible divides the world. Uh, the seed of the woman, right, aligned with Christ, and the seed of the serpent, aligned with Satan. 
Well, how does that play itself out at the governmental level? Well, as you walk through scripture, you often see an antagonism between the governments of the world, the nations of the world, and God's people. You often see that. We, we read about it in Psalm 2, right? The kings of the earth set themselves against, against uh, the Lord's anointed, right? The ultimate ruler is Christ. The ultimate anointed one is Christ. And the governments of the world often, often antagonize that. They often antagonize that. Even in Israel, right? When you had a wicked ruler, right? There was antagonism towards those who knew God within in the, 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 the nation, so at an ultimate level, and you think about the church like this, think of the church, one other way you could think about the church is as, a, as an embassy, right? You guys know what an embassy is, right? So it's, it's sovereign territory in another nation, right? Uh, so if I go to Canada and I go to the U.S. embassy, that's U.S. soil within, uh, within Canada, right? Well, the church, in a sense, is like that, right? It is not the kingdom of God in the sense that it is the fullness expression of that kingdom. We wait for that for the future, However, it is a microcosm and a, an embassy of Christ's ultimate rule. And so you have an embassy of that, 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 that rule of Christ, that ultimate rule of Christ, in a nation and among nations that are ultimately antagonistic to that rule. So there's an ultimate antagonism between the church and the kingdoms of this world. Now, at that moment, you might be tempted to say, all right, then our responsibility is to overthrow that human government, right? Because there's antagonism and we need, you know, to establish Christ's kingdom. No, no. It's never how the final establishment of the kingdom is portrayed in Scripture. You see, going back to Daniel, you remember those, that statue with all the kingdoms and the, the, the head of gold represents Babylon and then you've got Persia and then all, you know, all these kingdoms, but what happens at the end? The stone cut out by no human hand comes from heaven and it strikes the statue and overthrows it. It's not the people's responsibility. It's not the saints' responsibility to establish the kingdom. It is Christ's responsibility when he comes again. So there's this ultimate antagonism, and yet it's not our responsibility to deal with it. That's, that's Christ's responsibility. In fact, Christ in the Gospels is very clear. He does not want his followers fighting by arms to establish that kingdom or to overthrow where they're at. Christ is the one who will overthrow all human governments opposed to him when he comes again. So, when, when is it right for a Christian or a church to disobey the government? We come back to Romans 13. What, we need to understand this rightly, okay? So we're going to read through it again, and I'm going to draw a couple principles. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Does that text say that you never disobey the government? No, it does not. But it does say that in general you shouldn't and are not to obey, disobey the government. Right? In general, Christians are not to be characterized by disobeying the government. What Paul's speaking to here, I don't think he's speaking to an individual issue of disobedience. Because the language talks about, an, and this is true even in the original, you look at this language of resistance, it's an ongoing characteristic attitude. It's standing against the order that God has established. It's trying to overthrow. In general, Christians should be able to do good in the nation they are in as that embassy, right? And to, uh, to live peaceably, right? That's in general what we do. That's what we should do. And even, even when we have to disobey, and there are times, and I'm getting to them, even when you must disobey in an instance doesn't mean you're overall disobedient, right? Just because I disobey in one area doesn't mean I disobey in all areas. That doesn't make sense, right? We're to, how do we, how do we handle this, right? We try to do good. We try to do good where we're at. We try to overcome evil with good. That's what it says at the end of Romans 12, and that's what he's talking about in Romans 13. You try to overcome evil with good. What's another responsibility of ours to the government? Second Timothy Second, sorry, 1 Timothy, my bad. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. We should be doing this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We want to live a peaceful and quiet life. We want to be able to do good. We want to be proclaiming the gospel. So in characteristic, we should not be people who are disobedient, but we should be people who are praying for the governmental authorities, even when they're antagonistic to the gospel. Like we already said, we do need to proclaim to the government what is right and what is wrong, because how else are they going to know? That's right and wrong as God defines it. Now, when is it right for a Christian or a church to disobey a government? Well, there's a couple musts. You must disobey the government when an authority forbids what God commands. When an authority forbids what God commands. Here's an example. Daniel 6 and Daniel in the lion's den, right? Daniel is forbidden by government order to, from praying. And what does he do? He goes up and he prays, right? You have to disobey the government when authority forbids what God commands. God commands prayer. Uh, sorry, can't, can't obey that law because God commands prayer and, and Daniel, uh, Daniel disobeys. Here's another one. A Christian must disobey the government when an authority commands what God forbids. When an authority commands what God forbids. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. The, the government and the authorities commanding worship of an idol. Can't do it. Won't do it. Uh, because our allegiance is ultimately to God.
Here's a third category, and this is the one that doesn't get uh, talked about very much, but we're understanding better as we had to wrestle through these issues. You may or must, depends on the issue, uh, when an authority commands what's not theirs to command. When an authority commands what is not theirs to command. There's an example of this uh, in in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 22. We're not going to read it, but here's the issue. King Uzziah takes on him for himself the role of a pri the priesthood. He enters the temple, and he takes on himself the role of the priesthood, and the priests come and stop him because he's entered a sphere that is not his. It is not his. It'd be like this, right? A wife is called to submit to her husband, but she's not called to submit to uh, the, uh, uh, someone else's, uh, another guy, right? A wife is called to submit to her husband, but she's not, that doesn't mean she's called to submit to every guy, right? They're different spheres. So when the government or the authority commands what's not theirs to command, there is no obligation to obey. Three categories. When an authority forbids what God's to command, when an authority commands what God forbids, when an authority commands what's not theirs to command. Those are three categories you need in your mind. I'll say them one more time. When an authority forbids what God commands, when an authority commands what God forbids, and when an authority commands what's not theirs to command. Now, here's the thing. Two more, two more things to say about this. When we as a church or I as an individual disobey the government, and let's suppose they hold me accountable. This happened, you, many of you are aware, up in Canada, right? It's a church meeting, full capacity. The government uh, had several restrictions leading up to this uh, and, and warnings, etc. But that church and that preacher, James Coates, was under conviction that he, he had, they had to hold full services. Right? And they arrested him. And they threw him in jail. But what happened is very interesting is he came quietly. He came quietly. The government said, turn yourself in, and he did. Government said, turn yourself in, and he did. And that is always the pattern in Scripture. Even when you're, you're, you think of John the Baptist, you think of Jesus even, right? Uh, was what was done to them right? No. Did they hold the, the, those people accountable? Yes. Did they, were they raucous or disobedient or threatening or violent when, when they were apprehended and the sword was executed against them? No, they, come, they came quietly. They came quietly. And even when we must disobey, there's still prudence in how we disobey, right? There's still a wisdom of disobedience doesn't always look like one thing. There's a prudence in how you go about it. So Jesus has ultimate authority. We've talked about the spheres of authority. We've talked about some principles of when to disobey governmental authority. Now, like I said, the COVID issue has brought this all up, but these are things that we need going forward into the future. Now, where do we stand? As an eldership before you, where do we stand? Let me sum up a couple things. The government has mandated things in the church that it has no right to mandate. Capacity limits disallow the whole body gathering together. We talked about this last week, right? The whole body gathering together is, well, we talked about it this week too, right? We are commanded as a whole body to gather together, but there's a theological reason too, because 
we are manifesting God's presence together as a whole gathered body. Now, those capacity limits are now recommended. It used to be um, restrictions, but now they're recommended. Here's another area, though. Social distancing deters fellowship and encouragement of one another, which display, which inc- which, of which displays a physical affection on our part. I was reading these restrictions in government, the government site, right? I looked at the official restrictions. You are, are mandated by the government to not give a hug, to immediately leave, to not talk to anyone else outside of your own family group. You are mandated by the government to do that. That is wrong. It is left up to your own conscience on what you need to do with that. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you need to give a hug, but what I'm saying is there is a scriptural precedent and command for saying to greet one another in such a way that you are encouraging one another, even, even through physical displays of that. Masks inhibit clear communication and singing. Now, we can still communicate. We can still sing, right? We're doing that this morning. They do inhibit it. You need a category of inhibiting. It, it makes it harder. It makes it harder. It impedes speaking the truth to one another, which is what we're called to do. It impedes encouraging another, which we're called to do. And it impedes ascribing worth to God to the fullest extent possible. I was in a church in Idaho a couple months ago, and they, most people weren't wearing masks. And it was amazing to me, the singing. Uh, it was amazing to me, the singing, and my, my heart was encouraged. And it just made me realize, yeah, we're able to sing which we're commanded to do, and we will do because we are commanded to do it, but it inhibits, uh, the mass inhibit that, that to the fullest extent possible. Here's another reality as uh, we can talk about the theological and the biblical reasons all day long. We are given the legal right to do what we're doing. Now, Paul in Romans uses his legal rights. He uses his Roman citizenship a bunch. Go ahead and go to the next slide. We are under the Constitution given the right. Now, It's not because of the Constitution that we would disobey the government, right? Because it's about worship, and it's about doing what Christ honors. And yet, there's some strategy involved in using uh, the laws of the land where you happen to live, right? And the Constitution does allow for us for peaceful assembly and the free exercise of worship, which is what we're doing. Here's another reality that we would affirm as an eldership, and I'm going to call the other guys up here in a moment. The physical risk associated with this virus has been grossly exaggerated. I've run, now that's not just an opinion. Uh, I do have a bath background and I was able to look at some numbers and look at some statistics for Hood River County, for Wasco County. I've looked at it for age ranges all across Oregon. Most categories, even accounting for age, I would estimate, and it is an estimation, but your probability of entering the COVID-19 event and leaving it, the probability of you uh, of survival is better than 99%. In the most vulnerable category, and I acknowledge that, right? I'm not saying there's no pandemic. I'm not saying that there's not a virus. There is, right? In the most vulnerable category, even if we doubled the number of deaths that have happened, God forbid that that would happen, and it probably won't, there'd be a, even accounting for doubling of deaths, there'd be a 98% survival rate. 
So we believe that the physical risk associated with this virus has been grossly exaggerated. Many others are saying the same. We can also look at other churches that have no masking or distancing requirements and haven't for months, and there has been, it's not that there's not been no cases, nor that there haven't been any deaths, but they have been so limited that we've been, feel it's been grossly exaggerated. Now, I'd like to call the other elders up at this point because we do have a statement to kind of issue on all of this. Kind of, but here's the reality. We're weighing all this. We're bringing you up to speed, right? We're weighing all this as elders. We're trying to make the best decision possible under Christ. And what we need from you is prayer, right? We need your prayer, and we need your your, your um, prayer on our behalf for wisdom on what's the best step to do. And if there was ever, we want to say this too, the lines of communication are open, right? Talk to us. If you have concerns or questions as we're mulling over this, come talk to us. Come talk to me. Come talk to Jim. Come talk to Steve. Come talk to Andre. But this is where we're at and where we're thinking. So to that end, I'd like to invite all four, all the other three elders to come up we do have a statement to issue. We will then pray. Here's another takeaway from this. Pray for our governing authorities. Pray for our governing authorities. We're always called to do that. I'll have Jim read our statement as an eldership. We will pray, and then we will have a benediction. This statement was drafted before we met this morning. So in the context of reading this, you might see a little double play, but uh, uh, it was what we've been working on all week long, so here it is. As you probably noticed this morning, we have removed seating restrictions in every other pew. This is a decision we have come to as a whole eldership as a step that we believe honors Christ as Lord of this church and that we believe is best for us in our joyful responsibility as the local manifestation of God's temple on earth. Last Sunday, Chris helped remind us of what the church is as the local manifestation of God's temple on earth in this era. That temple is manifested when the local assembly gathers on the Lord's day for worship and song, word, prayer, the Lord's supper, and baptism. To honor Christ as part of his temple, we desire as your elders for all of our members to participate in Sunday morning gathering, not only for their own spiritual benefit, but also to take part in the joyful responsibility of together manifesting God's concentrated presence through his spirit among his gathered people. To this end, we wanna make sure that all of our members or visitors are able to be in the same space in the sanctuary to see the physical temple assembled in the people gathered in order to make this possible, we have decided to remove the pew restrictions to accommodate all members and visitors who wish to attend. Also, March 7th will be the last Sunday in which we live stream this Sunday service. The sermon audio will still be recorded and posted 
online. We understand that there are those who for health reasons think unwise to be physically present with us on Sunday morning. And we would continue to ask those who are feeling ill to remain home until feeling better. For those who feel that they need to remain at home, missing the Sunday gathering for an extended period of time, we would encourage you to reach out to one of the elders to visit with you for a time of mutual encouragement. We desire your continued growth in maturity in, fellow, in, the following, in following Christ and would love the opportunity to spend time with you in both word and prayer. We are thankful that we have, to our knowledge, no transmissions of COVID related to our gathering on Sundays as a local church. We're coming up on a year of dealing with COVID-19 and navigating this unprecedented season as a church. Since we have more data and, underst and understanding about the virus now than we did a year ago, we can see that the survival rate uh, from this virus is very high and hence the risk of harm is very low. As churches across this country have opened up with few or no restrictions, an example as Grace Community in Los Angeles County, the risk associated with gathering of those churches and virus transmission has remained very low, especially when those who feel sick stay away for a Sunday or two. We are not saying that there is no risk. There is always risk associated with a living in the fallen world. We believe, however, that when balancing our duty to gather as a church together, and in our judgment, the minuscule but increased risk of removing pew restriction, it is right that we remove the pew restrictions. We understand that some of you may have concerns on relationship to government restrictions. Chris, in his sermon this morning, helped us to understand that relationship better. However, even as, even as Chris has shared, if any of you have concerns or questions, please feel free to ask any of the gentlemen here on the podium. We love you all and are thankful for you all. Let us pray to the Lord as we take these steps as your church. Let's pray. Christ, you are Lord of your church. We have acknowledged that this morning. We want to continue to acknowledge that. And we, we know we are limited, we are finite, but we want to honor you. That is our greatest desire, to honor you, Lord Christ. Help us as individuals and as a church to do so. We ask for our wisdom as elders and as responsible to you for this flock. We pray these things and ask them in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me send you out with a benediction. 1 Timothy 1.17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You are sent. Amen.